Friends and comrades, this is Rob in the shadow of Rockford Tower in the Bunker Studio recording for you another episode of the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Super producer Carl is at a secure remote location, and both Carl and I are excited to host our esteemed guest today. Professor Richard White is the Margaret Byrne Emeritus Professor of American History at Stanford University. He is the author of several influential books, including The Middle Ground, Indians, Empires, and Republics in the Great Lakes Region, 1650 to 1815, Railroaded, the Transcontinentals, and the Making of Modern America, and the work we will discuss today, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1896. It is our pleasure to welcome Professor Richard White to Highlands Bunker. Good to be here, Rob. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time. So the book is a broad examination uh, of over three decades of American history, and it's a big book. Uh, so my plan is just to select some particular stories and common themes that are intriguing to me and that may inform our present political and economic environment uh, and perhaps instruct our current leftist organizing project. Um, there are a lot of stark parallels between um, the Gilded Age and our history today, but also I think there are some very telling fundamental differences. Um, and I hope you'll feel to direct the conversation, you can direct the conversation in any way you'd like. Um, present us with any new details, I, I would be happy for you to do that. Um, my, my first uh, topic, or, or I want to lead into, I guess, the beginning of the story with Benjamin Butler. Um, he was a New York, uh, excuse me, a New England Democrat and one of the Union's political generals who declined Lincoln's invitation um, to run uh, as the VP nominee in the second term. Uh, Lincoln was looking for a Unionist Democrat to balance the ticket, uh, and Butler seemed he'd be an excellent choice. His personal and political views seemed to evolve, as many Union soldiers had, from fighting for Union cohesion to fighting against a horrible fascist plantation empire uh, built on chattel slavery. Uh, Butler passed on this opportunity, and the VP spot went to another loyal Democrat to the Union, uh, an alcoholic tailor from Tennessee. Um, Andrew Johnson, um, can, you, can you give us a little background on Andrew Johnson and, and talk about how his little interest in protecting um, the effort to democratize the South really um, tilted Reconstruction from the beginning. Okay. And, you know, what I, I phrase it is that Johnson was interested in democratizing the South, but it was going to be what my colleague now deceased called, George Fredrickson, called a heron Volk democracy. It was a white supremacist democracy. And that what Johnson saw is his constituency was going to be what he called ordinary white people in the South, ordinary white men. Uh, he had a deep resentment until after the Civil War against the Southern elite. So he's somebody who's posed in between a kind of white, what we would today call populism and a white supremacy. But at the same time, he can mobilize the class resentments of many Southerners. What he also is, is a racist. Um, he's a terrible racist. And the last thing that he wants is to share political power with freed people in the South. So he's an, a, a surprising person to end up president of the United States. Nobody really expected that. And he comes in, the Republicans actually have great hopes for him, precisely because he hates the old Southern elite so much, they thought he would be willing to cooperate with them in reconstructing the South, by which they mean tearing it down and rebuilding it in the image of the North. Yeah, and that image um, of the North uh, was built around the idea of, of free labor and, and the home. I think that's an important topic that I want to get to early because it resonates all the way through the story. 
um, the idea of progress through through like through wage labor to independence as wage labor being sort of a stop on this uh, journey that you would make uh, and Lincoln's home after his assassination in Springfield sort of used as a uh, as an example of uh, of a town and, and, and of a home. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit and how that was one used to define sort of citizenry, but also used to help exclude people um, exclude people from that citizenry citizenry I guess. Yeah, and and it's it's a complicated story, but but what it amounts to it's one of the great ironies of the Civil War, is when the South lost the Civil War, their ability to have what they saw as a hierarchical slaveocracy, they didn't see it the way the North saw it, it's going to be a slave-owning society, it's destroyed by the Civil War. But what's equally destroyed is Lincoln's vision of what the North is going to be. What they imagined is the whole country will be reconstructed in the vision of the North. And by the North, they meant literally Springfield, Illinois. It's going to be Protestant. It's going to be largely made up of independent producers. There's going to be a rough equality it is not at all the world that we're going to end up with in 1896 when we have really what's going to be a much more heavily immigrant society, a much more diverse society, an industrial society, a society that's deeply split by class divisions. So in 1865, what people don't know is the two visions of this, the United States are dying. One seems triumphant. The other one has clearly been defeated. But Lincoln and the Republicans are going to try, and in a lot of ways, that's what Reconstruction is about, is to try to make the whole United States look like Springfield, Illinois, with one big difference. It's not just going to be white equality, but it's going to be black equality. Um, it's going to be a vision that will be extended across the United States. It's a vision that's going to fail, but it's a vision that was quite real in 1865-1866. And one of the ways that the, the government... Uh, sort of incented this uh, kind of building of the home and finishing of the West was the railroads. So I, I, I know you have a lot to say about this, and I'm very interested in not only um, the government subsidies and the incentive to, to not only build the railroad, but to settle these towns around the railroad, but also the speculation schemes and the sort of the corporate domination um, that led into, uh, you know, uh, several panics during the, during the Reconstruction. It, it becomes, again, another one of the ironies of the period is that the Republican vision is about independent production. But to get independent production, you need an infrastructure across the West. The United States claimed the West from Indian peoples, but they did not control it. And so they figure that rapid settlement, and this they're you know, half right, half wrong, is going to depend on building railroads. But nobody is going to build a railroad where there is no traffic to carry. So to get the railroads to build, they have to offer incentives. And they offer um, a great deal of incentives, both land and money, to build the transcontinentals. What it'll lead to is an orgy of corruption. But their idea is you build the railroads, you subsidize the railroads, the railroads will bring in independent farmers, they will sell the land to the farmers cheaply because the farmers, uh, they need the farmers to produce crops that the railroads will carry. And the end result of subsidizing corporations is supposedly going to be the creation of the independent society that they had imagined. It doesn't turn out that way, but that is the plan. It's going to go on for about eight years before they begin to cut back on the subsidies, and there's a huge reaction against it. 
But it is going to be the way in which they will integrate the West into the rest of the United States. Um, and it's a plan that uh, is going to bring down the Grand Administration in part. It's going to cause great problems for the rest of the century. Yeah, one of the other interesting um, sort of paradoxes is that uh, and it kind of goes along with the railroad because uh, the cowboys were, were driving sort of cattle to uh, particular spots to market and up to Chicago. Uh, and this the myth of sort of the cowboy being the the independent, you know, uh, person on the land, you know, doing what he may uh, want to do uh, and sort of the epitome of freedom when actually the cowboy was it was a wage laborer, you know, under a, a fairly. Um, draconian sort of simple uh, corporate structure uh, and not anything at all uh, like what we would what would a you know what someone would think of as a as a cowboy I find that a very interesting story yeah and cowboys are an invention of the end of the 19th century um, they're a way in which you create a mythic figure which will stand for American individualism but the real story of the Gilded Age is and the, and the most shocking change to most Americans is we become a nation of wage earners before that, I think, as you mentioned earlier, people worked for wages for part of their life. It was a stage, the way Lincoln would talk about it. Just, yeah, I worked for wages, and then I went on to become an independent lawyer, became president of the United States. And he said, that's the way it's going to be for most Americans. His wage earning is not going to be your ultimate end in your life. If you did, you're a failure. It's just going to be a stage that you pass through on your way to independence. But by the 1870s, 1880s, Americans have realized, no, you're going to work for wages. Um, we're becoming both an industrial society and for them, more critically than being an industrial society, a society of workers, of wage earners. And wage earning is going to be the beginning of your working life. It's going to be the end of your working life. And the real thing about that is both practically and symbolically, you're not independent anymore. You depend on people hiring you and paying you wages. They're the ones who are going to be able to tell you what to do, how you're going to live your life, how you're going to keep your home, how you're going to vote politically. And the idea that American democracy can survive with wage earners is something that goes back to Jefferson and before that, that it is seen as antithetical to the Republican experiment. So for the United States, this is going to be a political and a cultural crisis. And that's what makes the cowboy so ironic. The cowboy, as you point out, is a wage earner. He works for increasingly as the cattle boom goes on for corporations. But then he's going to be resurrected as if he had been the preeminent American individualist, which was never, ever the case. So the cowboy plays a huge mythic and symbolic role, but it's not the actual role. And the actual role of being a wage earner is the one that really goes to the root of the American experience during this period. Yeah, I'm also very interested in sort of the attempts to build democratic coalitions and, and build sort of political influence from, I guess you would call it the grassroots. So there's actually three that I would just like you to, to sort of explain and give your thoughts about. The first is the readjusters in Virginia. Um, they seem to have not only created a, a diverse coalition, but have but, but captured power uh, for a particular period of time. Uh, while they were founded by an ex-Confederate, uh, you know, they had a, a multiracial coalition that was able to take back power very early on during Reconstruction. And I find it a very interesting case for this kind of organizing. And I wonder if you can tell the story of the readjusters, who they were, and um, sort of their rise and fall. 
Sure. The, the readjustment has come about in the background of Reconstruction, and um, it's towards the end of Reconstruction. It's actually after Reconstruction, where much of the South, um, Black people have been deprived of the vote, but they maintain the vote in Virginia. But what you have is the redemptionist government, as they were called at the time, the ex-Confederates who took over, are thoroughgoing reactionaries. What they really want to do is to keep the taxes low. And it's a technical thing, but what it amounts to is that if, in effect, you can use um, old government bonds, you can buy them up cheap and you can use them to pay their taxes. And if you use them to pay their taxes, that means the government is getting absolutely no revenue but the bonds gain value for those bondholders who've been able to hold them. So this has just become part of a huge fraud which benefits the rich at the cost of the state and state revenue. And the reason this makes a difference is because um, with the state doesn't have any revenue, it doesn't have a school system. So essentially Virginia starts dismantling school systems for both poor whites and for blacks. And this gives a chance for it to be an alliance between freed people and ordinary white people, many of whom are ex-Confederates, many of whom were racist, but they have now a common enemy to readjust the way the government functions, to readjust the way the debt functions. So the readjusters come about as a quite pragmatic um, alliance between people who otherwise um, hated each other. Um, but what they have is a common enemy. And to the surprise of everyone, it takes over the state of Virginia. They still elect governors, senators, who the senators will vote with in their independents, but they vote with the Republicans. So for a moment, it looks like in the, in the South, you are going to have a black-white alliance, which will go against the reactionary Reconstruction governments, which have taken over. Is it, Am I mistaken, or is part of that sort of... Um financial aspect to this and the bond aspect also uh, a gold standard aspect uh the i guess it, go, going to the gold standard would go to be a big boom for uh elite financial interests and i sort of have been i i was interested in tracking that the gold argument and the gold standard argument through through reconstruction in the gilded age uh because because although it doesn't have you know exact resonance today there is a resonance for this idea of fiat currency, and I guess what we would call the greenbacks, and what that could do with the government. Um, was that was that an issue as part of the readjusters? Or, and if it wasn't, um, you could maybe talk about that more broadly. Yeah, I mean, the the answer is no. It's not part of the readjusters, but yes, it becomes a sort of fault line in which Americans split in the late nineteenth century. Um, for the readjusters, it goes back to the railroads. <laughs> I mean, a lot of things in the Gilded Age goes back to the railroads. What happened is in order to build railroads, the state of Virginia used its financial credit and sold out railroads that it already owned to Northern capitalists who will come in. And so it is taking over a lot of bonded responsibility. Those railroads will then fail and Virginia is left saddled with the debt and they're also saddled with these worthless bonds. But to buy back the bonds to give them value is something which will benefit those who had invested in the railroads among whom were many prominent Virginians. So it goes more to railroad finance. What the gold standard will do is that the United States had never really been on the gold standard. It had been on the mixed standard. But there is this argument that for financial stability and a prosperous economy, and particularly to align themselves with England, the great financial power at the time, the gold standard is necessary. So there's going to be a huge fight over the gold standard, which simmers. Sometimes it goes beneath the surface. Then times when it comes back up, it's also tied in with redeeming the Civil War debt. It's a whole series of financial questions. 
But when it comes out that in the 1880s, the United States has de facto gone on the gold standard, it will start a period of deflation, which will continue on through the rest of the century. And deflation hurts people who owe money because they're paying back with more valuable money than they borrowed. It becomes much harder to borrow. It hurts farmers. Um, and that is going to set apart the great struggle that will end up with the populist revolt in the 1890s. Yeah, that's the exact uh, farmer, uh, I guess, uh, dissent. That, that was their, the issue that created the populist, I guess, in Kansas was uh, the idea that uh, this valuation was just going to decimate them. Yeah. And, you know, the, the real solution to it is one the greenbackers brought in, which is essentially what we have now is a fiat currency. Um, the argument is over the nature of money, that there is no particular reason why gold, except for being scarce, should be the value of anything. And if gold is scarce and you tie currency to it, then it means you're not going to have the currency you need in a growing economy, which is precisely what happened. For the conservatives who want the gold standard, they argue that this is going to make sure that we have real money is the way they'd phrase it, not paper money, which can be changed at any time. But what you need is paper money that can be changed at any time. Um, so in terms of the logic of the argument, the gold standard people were losers. Um, it's not going to be something anybody but fanatics hold today, but there's still fanatics who hold it. But in terms of the politics of the 19th century, by and large, though it's bitterly fought, they will win. The United States stays on a de facto gold standard going into the 20th century. Um, the next group I, I wanted to uh, have you talk about a little bit, maybe give your thoughts on, uh, is the Knights of Labor. Uh, while they uh, were also able to build a, a fairly diverse coalition, um, we see... Uh, terrible uh, xenophobia against the, the Chinese immigrants. Uh, but we also do see, you know, a, a fairly diverse power going up against the capital interests of the time. Uh, and I think there is a lot to be learned from that exactly um, these days. Um, but I'd like you to talk a little bit maybe about the Knights of Labor, but, but labor in general uh, and some of perhaps the big actions um, that, you, that you describe in the book. It's, it's, again, this goes back to the fact that wage labor for the first time has become the common experience of um, most Americans, most American workers. And the Knights of Labor, at the time, wage work is seen as the detriment to the republic. It's seen as undercutting manhood. It's seen as being anti-republican, as being anti-democratic. Um, you know, who is it that says that you give up your rights as a citizen the moment you enter the workplace? Who is it that says the ways you will be dictated to you would never allow in the political realm is going to happen as your common experience for 10, 12 hours a day when you're working in a factory? So if wage labor is going to be the future, then somebody has to imagine a different kind of future. And what the Knights of Labor imagine is not just getting more money. They imagine redoing the entire economy. They, their goal is a cooperative economy. They're going to be very different from the later AF of L which will, will come to that in the end. But the AFL has an idea that what you want to do is raise the work, living standards of the working class. The Knights of Labor are much, much more um, ambitious. What they want to do is remake the whole economy so the economy will consist of cooperative enterprises, that factories will be managed by those who bring in the capital as well as the workers, that the, that the um Fruits of their labor will be distributed among the laborers, that you would have, in fact, a workplace which is as democratic and republican as the society. 
What they look at is, well, later will be denounced as utopian, but that's not the way they see it. They see this as the only way you're going to get around the problem that's confronting the republic, that how can you have independent citizens supposed to be um, acting democratically and running the government, but at the same time, those citizens and the kinds of words that they'd use are going to be slaves to their bosses in the factory. You have to bring these things into congruence, and you don't do it by turning the United States into autocracy. What you do is democratizing the workplace, which is what they're about. So the Knights of Labor look towards this transformation of the society. They're not revolutionaries. They see this as coming gradually. Um, but again, what you run into is the problem they're doing this in what's becoming a more and more diverse society. Um, it's just their major problem is going to be Catholics and Protestants, but they also, as they move into the South and the West, begin to confront racial minorities. In the South, what they do do, though they don't do it very well, is allow Black people to come in. Black people become enthusiastic members of the Knights of Labor, but the problem is there's going to be a couple of strikes, both in um, particularly in the sugar fields in Louisiana, where the Knights call the strikes and then just people literally get slaughtered. The Knights do not have enough support. They cannot bring in enough strength to, to buttress their own workers, and it's an absolute disaster, and they retreat out of there. In the West, they identify the Chinese as a scapegoat. There they are, as you say, xenophobic. They're, they become major players in Chinese exclusion. So where what the Knights do depends on their context. They're xenophobic in the West. They're pretty racially egalitarian in, in the South, and they allow Black members to come in in the North. Um, so where, where you look depends on what you see with the, with the Knights. Um, the other problem they have is that, you know, Frederick Ingalls looks at them and doesn't know quite what to make of them. I mean, he, they have the ability, particularly after they win strikes against Jay Gould, to create immense enthusiasm among the American working class. They bring in members um, right and left. They're flooded with new members in the mid-1880s. And under Terrence Powderly, they don't really know what to do with them. They can't organize quickly enough. And they're bringing in militant workers at the time where the Knights don't have the resources to, to support the strike. So when the strikes erupt, the Knights once again are very good at getting worker enthusiasm, but they're not so good at actually conducting the strikes. And the strikes in the um, great wave of strikes in the 1880s turn into an absolute disaster for the Knights. So as a labor union, the Knights are a failure as people who can reconceive what American republicanism might look like, the Knights aren't so much of a failure. The Knights really have the ability to imagine what a different kind of America will look like, even if they don't have the organizational ability um, to really achieve it. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the dynamic between Protestants, the Protestant idea of home, and the Catholic split. Um, do you see that basically as a proxy for immigration, European immigration of the time of Italians, Irish, um, German? Is, is that what that is? Or was there something deeper to pursue? You know, it's, it's partially that. I mean, it's it's a harsh thing to say, but it's one of the things that um, does create parallels with the present time. There are periods in American history where Americans hate each other. I mean, this, this idea that, in fact, we have all really share the basic core values at heart just is not true. It's not true in the 19th century. We are split by deep racial divisions. We are split by real deep religious divisions. 
And a lot of the stuff now that you pawn off as anti-Catholicism, which it is anti-Catholicism, there's a reason for it. The Catholic Church is seen as an anti-democratic institution. It is seen as an enemy of the public schools. And anti-Catholics contend all these things, and they are right. And the church is an enemy of the public schools. And the Catholic Church is an anti-democratic institution. There'll be Catholics who are struggling to democratize the Catholic Church. But when the Catholic Church's enemies turn to anti-Catholicism and say they're antithetical to everything we believe about republicanism, about the way we organize our schools and our society, it is not simply religious prejudice they're talking about. They're talking about something that is, in an extent, very, very real. So you have to take apart the anti-immigrant stuff, which is real. But then you have to also think that you know not all immigrants like each other. The American Protective Association in the 19th century is heavily made up of immigrants who hate other immigrants. Um, Chinese exclusion is, gets a lot of its power in the West from Irish and German immigrants who hate Chinese immigrants. It's really a complicated country, so any line that you draw through and say, well, immigrants will fall on one side, um, nativists will fall on the other, it begins to fall apart when you look at particular institutions. This is a country in the 19th century why, why people are so sure by the 1880s, 1890s that it's gonna be on the brink of revolution, it's gonna fall apart because the fissures are really deep and they run all over the society. The third group I wanted to talk about, because I think it has implications um, to one of these sort of uh, paradoxes, um, the women's suffrage movement, because it was led by a woman, Frances Willard. Uh, but it also had, uh, obviously, impact into the idea of the Protestant home, uh, into just the cultural um, sort of uh, mores of the working class, and that's the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, I think it kind of gets like when you when you hear those to our ears today, it sounds like kind of old folksy, not important. But this is actually was a, a large organizing organization, a organizing organization, a large organization and um, did have uh, in some places uh, political power. So I thought maybe you could um, talk about the background and maybe those cultural uh, implications of it as well. And Francis Willard is becomes the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union is, you know, I would say probably the most skilled politician in late 19th century America. And she brings back both its strengths and um, its weaknesses. She's going to be in favor of suffrage, but she's politically active long before women get suffrage and she herself never gets to vote. But that doesn't mean that she's not politically powerful. What she latches onto is the home as a cultural symbol, which most Americans will agree to. It's one of those things which is a unifying force. So what she says the United States should consist of is these homes, these homes which have an independent producer and in which women have a role. The role is in the home, but women are in charge of the home. And so the home then becomes what people at the time call the imperial home. If women are in charge of home and children, then everything that affects the home and children should have the influence of women. And that means schools should be something that women influence. I mean, city governments, because you're going to have to have children go out in the streets. We need sewage. We need streets. We need electricity. We need cleanliness. That should be the domain of women. Um, governments have to be not corrupted so that, in fact, the saloon, which they see as the great corrupter of American society, becomes the enemy. And that's, of course, goes to the core of American temperance. So to do that, you have to root out political machines. So Willard will become somebody who, by saying women are domestic, 
the home is the, is the um, bastion of women, will branch out into the whole society. There's virtually no reform in the 19th century that women don't have a role in. But at the same time, even though she comes from an abolitionist family, Willard is a white woman. She's a white evangelical woman. And when she moves into the South to bring white women in, it's very often gonna be at the expense of black women. She will have a very public fuel feud with Ida B. Wells because Ida B. Wells points out the obvious is that most black men who are lynched for accusations of rape did not rape women. They did not rape the women they're accused of raping. Either it had been consensual sex or they've been framed. And for Willard, you can't do that. You cannot challenge anything that's the defense of the home and the defense of women. Willard is all for it. So she denounces Wells and there's going to be some patching it over, but it's going to be a deep quarrel. In the same way that Willard is always going to blame um, a lot of the pro social problems that afflict both Indian peoples and um, Black people on that they drink too much. So temperance is going to blaming the victim there. And more than that is she will then cast or cooperate in casting Black people, Native Americans, Chinese as enemies of the home. In one way or another, they not only don't establish homes of their own, but they threaten the white home. And at that time, you create one of the great tropes that'll be used against non-white people in America down to the present day. They are people who are a danger to the basic unit of society, which is the family and the home, symbolized by the white women. So she's an incredibly complicated figure. I mean, she's a reformer. She's a skilled politician. She really, in a lot of ways, wants to expand the realm of democracy in America. But at the same time, these kind of racial... Um, Problems that affect the rest of American society also affect the Women's Christian Temperance Union. They're not exempt from it. You mentioned uh, as part of that, and I think we've touched on a lot of these, and I kind of want to bring them together like this because it's a very uh, interesting piece of research um, that you go through in the book. Um, obviously, this time is very violent. Um, Southern lynchings, genocide in the West, the, the labor organizing and, and, put, and put downs of labor movements that we talked about. Um, but production and output is increasing. Wealth is increasing. Uh, but not only does it lead to a disparity of incomes, it leads to, a, a, you know, most people's life expectancy gets worse. Infant mortality is bad. Um, the, the people's heights uh, uh, stay stagnant or, or get worse. And so there's an issue within the cities of just sort of health um, sewer and water, um, electricity, things of that nature. And, and the political sort of fights around that, a lot of them have to do with, um, uh, you know, political machines, uh, in the cities, the democratic, you know, sort of immigrant political machines. Um, but I, if you could talk a little bit about that research and also the politics about just starting to work on public services now that the dream, now that the dream was the home, but the reality is there's a lot of people in the city um, and how that works. Um, one, of, one of the basic questions, one of the things I like about the Gilded Age is that they will ask really basic questions. And one of the questions is, what exactly is the economy for? Is the economy for producing the maximum amount of wealth? And you don't really care about the consequences of that or the distribution of it. But as long as we are producing more, what we would now call, you know, the, the GDP goes up, everything is good and not to worry. 
Or is the point of an economy, and this goes back to Lincoln, but it'd be the Knights and it'll be others too, is the point of an economy and a democracy to produce democratic citizens who have equal rights and an equal ability to succeed. And the argument for a lot of Americans is that it's actually to produce democratic citizens. If an economy is not producing democratic citizens, what the populace will say, if in fact what you have these incredibly rich people and a growing number of poor, I don't care what you're producing, the economy has failed. But along this has been those who argue, well, say what you may, the economy really was very productive. And this becomes very, very hard to determine because certainly the economy is productive, but is it productive in the sense that um, most Americans are living better than their ancestors did. We don't have really good wage data and we don't even have that good consumption data. So what you can use as a surrogate is okay, we can, we can reason like this. If Americans are living better, they're probably gonna be healthier and live longer. If Americans are having a higher standard of living, they're probably gonna increase their body size um, and they're gonna be taller than they were before. If Americans are growing more secure, then their children should not be dying when they're really young. And then in fact, the lifespan of Americans again should be going up. And those things we can measure. We can measure much more than we can in economic statistics. And, and one of the things that shocked scholars over the last 15 or 20 years is things into the 1880s weren't getting better, they're getting worse. American lifespan is going down. And I'm not talking here, well, it's because all these immigrants are coming in. No, we're, we're focusing on native born. Um, Americans are getting shorter than their ancestors had been. And say, oh, well, there's all these people coming in from Europe. No, again, we're focusing on native born. The ch child death rate in um, Gilded Age America was absolutely astonishing. When you go back, it's an age in which dead children are just everywhere. And it's just wrenching and it affects mostly the poor, but also the rich. You did not expect, even in the 1880s, 1890s, your children to live to adulthood. Virtually every family is going to have children who die before they ever reach adulthood, usually long before they reach adulthood. So what you begin to get by the 1880s and 1890s, whatever is happening here, it is certainly not benefiting the mass of people. And they begin to understand why. I mean, they don't, they don't understand disease, but they begin to understand that it is going to be connected with pure water and with certain kinds of pollution. And they also realize that it's very hard to get people to fix those things for a profit. So one of the great reforms of 19th century America, one of the places where government just works far more efficiently in the private sector, and which will turn more and more um, of the of these functions over to government is bringing in pure water, you know, is making sure that we have sewage systems to get rid of waste. And then you go to beginning to urban transportation systems. And the argument by the end of the century is gonna be there are certain things that government just does a whole lot better than market societies. Um, they do it more efficiently with, uh, with less cost and with less corruption and they get results. And this is gonna be part of the way in which certain groups can begin to make coalitions. Because one of the things that public health unites people around is that, um, you know, if the ship is sinking, everybody goes down with it. And if the, if the city is a ship, even the rich people are gonna be affected by this, that these kinds of health concerns affect everyone. So a lot of what will later be progressive reform starts not on the national level, but on the urban level because these are problems which simply have to be confronted. And 
Americans in the 19th century, it's not that you don't hear this kind of market talk that I'll leave it up to the market, it'll be cured. The market talk is there, but most Americans don't buy it. Um, it doesn't register in their daily lives. Um, they realize that they're being screwed and they want to do something about it. Yeah, it, it, it brings, um, it, it really complicates the matter of the political machine, Tammany and, and others, um, because as a political organizing uh, group, uh, and being able to get constituent services to large populations of immigrants, for example, um, it's excellent. Um, but I, I th can you give some more detail about um, sort of the shift from uh, fee-based public service, where it was offered to uh, as patronage, where you could just charge something to do it, to uh, to sort of a bureaucracy, and how that worked through the uh, the political machines. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of what's called corruption in the Gilded Age, and a lot of it does go around political machines, is because of the way that Americans regarded government coming out of the Civil War. And the basic argument, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying somewhat, is that um, those who get the services should pay for it. So that, in effect, those people who are going to use the service will pay for it. Those who are going to get water down the street will pay for the water. Um, those people who are going to um, require licenses should pay for the licenses. I mean, it'll go even to the vote and citizenship. If you want to be a citizen, you should pay for the, the papers that are going to make you a citizen. So it's this idea, government will do things, but it's only going to do it for a fee. It's going to do it, um, it's going to pay, we want, don't want a big bureaucracy, so we're going to allow um, sheriffs, for example, to collect part of the fines they collect from people they arrest. Um, we're gonna allow tax collectors to keep part of the taxes. And the idea is we keep the cost of government down. And you do keep the cost of government down. You also ensure an incredibly inefficient and corrupt government. And people begin to get angrier and angrier at this. When they begin to realize, I am being arrested largely because this guy can get a fee for bringing me in. Um, that's what the arrest is gonna be about. Uh, you know, I'm not getting water service in this city because I cannot afford to pay the taxes to get the water. Well, over in that street where they do have it, they get water. So my children don't have pure water and they're going to die a disease. Their children are going to be better off and have more of a chance. So once you begin to realize that this whole thing is both stacked in favor of those who can afford to pay, and also it invites public servants to um, stress those things for which they can get paid for, there is going to be an idea that what we have to do is move away for fees for service. What we have to do is uniform services which are gonna be paid from tax collection. And it's not gonna be from people who are gonna get their money by collecting the most fees, we gotta give them a salary. And if we give them a salary, they're gonna be a bureaucracy. So what you begin to do is move away from fee-based service where the whole idea is to keep government as simple and low paying as possible, as, as inexpensive as possible into a more efficient bureaucratic based service. I mean, one place you can show this up is, is the South, where in the South, the justice system becomes just this travesty. You arrest poor black people, you fine them, they cannot pay their fines, then you lease them out to employers who will keep them and pay off their fines for them for a certain amount of time, and who treat them in horrible circumstances in which they die in huge numbers. That's fee-based government. I mean, it becomes, it's too much to bear even in the South, and it's gonna be one of the great reforms that begin to come in, but again, it has, starts to happen on this local level. 
that the big reforms are going to be local. They're not going to be initially um, at the federal or even sometimes the state level. So the last story I want to talk about before we get to maybe some big themes um, to wrap up is um, the story of the ghost dance. I did not know this story. Obviously, I know the end of it, uh, but I did not realize that the massacre at Wounded Knee was based on the, uh, this, the I guess you would call it the bubbling up of this intersectional, inter- intersectional ritual uh, among Native Americans that um, just was misunderstood uh, and fear-mongered, I guess, by the government with no real evidence, and it created sort of a frenzy of anti, just anti-native sentiment, uh, and it and it created a situation where there was a horrible massacre. Um, but yeah, I think it talks a lot about just the idea of fear-mongering a, a, a threat for political reasons that really doesn't have, uh, there's no social or cultural threat to it. Um, but I'm interested in the story and, and maybe some of the details and, and some of the lessons that you have, have gleaned out of it. Yeah, it's... Most of what I take here is from what's been a, a recent book by Louis Warren um, on Wavoka, um, God's Red Son. And what Wavoka does, Wavoka is a pirate. He's in Nevada, um, and the whites call him Jack Wilson. As a matter of fact, for a long time, they don't even know when Indians refer to Wavoka that they're talking about Jack Wilson. And that Jack Wilson is part of this ghost dance tradition. It exists The ghost dance exists before, um, before Wavoka, but he simply taps into it, and he has a visionary experience. Um, And the visionary experience is he comes back with a message from God. This has happened repeatedly in the 19th century, both among Indians and among whites. And he tells the Indians that essentially what they're going to do is, for the time being, accommodate to white society. There's going to be a time when they will go into an Indian world, but meanwhile, what they have to do is get along with whites. So it's a way in which it's a message of accommodation. What you have to do is get educated, continue to work for whites, um, and that this is going to be the best use of it, the best use of their time and the best use of their energies. The message spreads out of there, spreads up into the Northwest, and spreads out into the plains. And among those, it goes to are going to be Lakotas, mostly Western Sioux. And Lakotas will bring the ghost dance back to the Sioux reservations. And by and large, and this is the part where the research is new, they hold to Wavoka's message. They are pretty much having an accommodationist message. They're saying, we're going to remain Indians, but what we're also going to do is we're also going to get educated. We are going to work for wages. We're going to become cattle ranchers. We're going to do this, and we're going to await the time when in fact we will go back to join our ancestors. And to show you that in fact, the ancestors are there and they're waiting for us as we do the ghost dance, people fall into a vision, they see their ancestors and um, these dances go on. Now the agent sees it. The agent is going to be somebody who the Indians nickname young man afraid of Indians, who um, doesn't like all these Indians getting together and doing the dance and seeing what he regards as these pagan superstitions um, falling down, having visions, coming back up. And so he begins to play upon um, fears, which he actually instigates in a lot of ways, because most whites originally weren't all that worried about it. But now that you begin to get messages that Indians are dancing and acting crazy, they're on the verge of violence, that they're going to spread out from the reservation, this is a message, they're going to kill all whites, those messages go up. It also comes, it becomes a complicated story, 
at a particular time because it's going to be around the time of um, political campaigns. And there's going to be a sense in which the Republican Party can see a way in which by putting this down, they can gain some votes. So it begins to play into this range where something which is not happening, that an armed revolt is developing among the Indians, or in fact that there is going to be um, any danger to surrounding white society, is played up and they bring in troops. Now, as you bring in troops, that immediately takes everybody's message back to 1876. It takes them back to the time the 7th Cavalry, which is one of the units that came in, had actually attacked the um, Lakota. So the Lakotas have deep memories of this. So when troops start showing up, some of the Lakotas flee. They, they flee into the Badlands to protect themselves from the troops. There's negotiations that'll take place. And what you're going to have is one band is going to come back. They're going to, they're going to come back out and they're going to go into... Um, they're heading for the Oglala Agency, and they stop at a place which is called Wounded Knee. They're going to be surrounded by 7th Cavalry, by troops. It's going to be a time where they first are going to take away the weapons. These are groups where, in fact, the leader of the group is going to be sick. He's going to be dying. They're surrounded by troops with Gatling guns. And at first, it looks like it's going to be okay. There's a Catholic missionary who comes in. He distributes cigarettes. He talks to them. He says, okay, everybody says, stay calm. It's all going to be good. And then they decide they want to take away the weapons. So they start searching men for weapons, searching under the blankets. Um, as they search under the blankets, they don't find many weapons, um, which leaves them in their ride is because they're not going to give up their weapons. They're scared of what's going to happen. So then they say what they're going to do is they're going to start ransacking um, the teepees on the way out. They're just simply surrounded. The men are separated from the women and children. Everybody's under um, surrounded by soldiers. The Gatling guns are aimed at them. And it's hard to say what happened next, but it appears there's going to be one deaf Indian. He's deaf and dumb. He has a gun. He won't give it up. Um, they start struggling with him and somebody shoots. Probably the person who shoots is going to be a soldier, but it could have been an Indian. It doesn't matter. At that point, the Indians are unarmed. By and large, the weapons they have are hidden. Um, the soldiers open up. Men scramble for weapons, whatever they can get. Others charge the soldiers with knives, and they start what amounts to a slaughter. Women, children flee. They're going to be pursued by the soldiers, shot down as they go. A couple of hundred people are going to die. It's an incredible massacre, which is going to lead up to the time as the most Medal of Honor is ever awarded for a single action in American history. Um, so it is a disaster. And when you read about it in the 1890s, people I respect see it as, as literally as being justified. William Dean Howells, who's one of the heroes of my book, sees it as, of course, this is what you have to do. They're savages. But it is an open massacre. And the odd thing is, all the Lakota wanted to do was find some way of accommodating themselves to a new world. And this is what they get. So it's one of the great tragedies of American history. Yeah. And I do want to talk about Howells, um, but before that, I kind of want to just touch on and summarize sort of what I have have been thinking about over the last just couple of weeks. So it's the top of my mind stuff. And, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this, this idea that people have almost innate about, uh, you know, free labor and freeing themselves from from wage labor. And I think about sort of the Trumpian Republican. And from all accounts, I mean, maybe not all accounts, but it seems like most accounts 
have uh, that group being, you know, small business owners, uh, real estate agents, law enforcement. Uh, but the, the general hand-to-mouth low-wage laborer, wage laborer, um, is, has been sufficiently marginalized now and really doesn't, isn't, isn't even really a political actor, I don't believe. Um, so from a, from a parallel standpoint, do you, do you find that there are parallels? And I did write this down. I know it's, it's kind of trite um, to call it the second Gilded Age, uh, what we're living in now. I, I suppose that it is based on um, just co common things. I don't think I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you look at it because it is. It is a little bit um, cliche. But I do think that this is one of the ways. One of the ways that it's 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 that economic piece of it is kind of uh, impacting the the political aspect today. Um, anyway, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. No, I, I'm one of the proponents that I think it, in a lot of ways the parallels are pretty close between the Gilded Ages. I mean, what's happening with the working class is is, is remember this is a time in. The Gilded Age, most Americans worked with their hands. Um, you know, the people who would now call the middle class are going to be a pretty small segment of the society. And, you know, my, my, my son uh, um, works for the studios in Los Angeles. He's, he's, a, he's a union worker. And he's not, but many of the people he work with are Trumpians. Um, that's why I believe, you know, I taught in Michigan for a long time. And a lot of the unions there, the union leadership is clearly Democrat, but the workers vote for Trump. And I agree with you that the, the core of the Trump support is not going to be really poor people. It's going to be people who are um, sort of lower middle class to middle class, very often because they have businesses of their own. Um, and all these groups will buy into this version of American individualism. I mean, it's a it's a version which has never really adequately described how Americans live, but it's really very quite tempting. And it goes back to the idea of free labor, but it's it's different from free labor. I, mean, I have a great sympathy for free labor because free labor comes about quite simply because the Americans distinguish between two kinds of labor. Slave labor and free labor. And free labor is good and slave labor is bad. And it's really hard to see how you can take any other position on that one. But then after a while, free labor becomes, well, are you really a free laborer if you're working for wages? If, in fact, you have no control over your working life. And if you have no control over your working life, at that point, you can call yourself free labor, but you're really not. And that's the crisis of the Gilded. And so now, and you know, you've pointed out the cowboys, all these individualist heroes, people, no matter how little it describes their actual life, will think that that's the version of America they want to belong to. And American myth is really, really strong in that way. So I think there's a lot, particularly people on the right, who really see themselves as, as individualists. I think it's one of the reasons guns play into it so much, that they're people who are going to protect themselves and they're going to protect their property. And even though, in fact, they're not really at all what we would call individualists, that's how they conceive of themselves. And how they conceive of themselves is going to determine how they how they vote. So the Trumpian alliance is, is really quite interesting compared to the Gilded Age, because most of the people who would have voted for Trump or, or, or vote for Trump are probably closer to the populists of the 1880s and 1890s. But then it was on the left, now it's on the right. I mean, populism, which is always ill-defined, has gone from a movement of the left to a movement of the right. 
And what it does is um, it's a distrust of government, which it sees is in the hands of the rich. And it's a distrust of the rich. The interesting thing to me about the Trump parallel is that Trump is the rich and most of Trump's policies have benefited the rich. But at the same time for his followers, he's seen as somebody who is draining the swamp and is an opponent to the rich. And that's very different from the populism that comes up in the 1890s, where in fact they see themselves as going after a government which they see under the control of the rich and they're going to take it back for the people. Yeah. And I guess to conclude, I think it's important to talk about an, another sort of aspect of the home that ran through the Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. And you talk about uh, William Dean Howells and the sufficiency of the common. Uh, and that's sort of the lesson is sort of the way that we differ. There was an idea that competency and having enough was important. Um, something more important than self-actualization or the individual. You know, cooperation, the Knights of Labor, cooperative. And the understanding that social and economic achievement doesn't come out of individual genius. I think a lot about that now in culture today, uh, but it's, that's actually not true. And so I wonder to close if you can talk a little bit about that aspect and, and that lesson um, uh, from this time period and from this history. Yeah. Now, what you bring up is one of the real reasons to um, study the past, because things which tend to get universalized, people think, well, these are always true. At least they're always true about Americans, that Americans always have wanted to get rich, that the goal is, is to um, achieve the most they can possibly achieve, uh, to accumulate as much property as possible, and to self-actualize as much as possible. That's not what 19th century Americans thought about. What they talked about was a competency. Um, you make enough money to support yourself, to support your family, to put something apart aside for old age, to get your children um, set up in life, and you have enough. That's it. Great wealth, there's absolutely no reason to do it. And the furthermore, they are not people who believe in great genius. I mean, when, when William Dean Howell says he believes in the sufficiency of the commons, what he means is whatever America is going to be is going to be because of the condition of the mass of its people. It's not going to be because of towering geniuses. And when you look at people who stand for the age, you know, you look at this, don't care where you're talking about Thomas Edison, um, you know, whether you're talking about um, Jay Gould, where you're talking about the robber barons, they're not the important people. The closer you look at them, the less impressive they are. What's more impressive is the goals of ordinary people for their children, for their neighbors, and for themselves. And that goal is not to be all that they can be. That goal is not to accumulate all that they can accumulate. That goal is to have a society which will provide the best for all of them. I mean, there is at the core for all the Gilded Age's faults, this basic democratic vision that if in effect, we aren't going to achieve anything if in fact we don't achieve it for virtually everyone. Some people only play lip service to it, but even Andrew Carnegie says, you know, the basic thing about the United States is equality. Of course, there's nothing in his life which shows he actually believes that, but he knows he has to say that, that nobody has any rights that somebody else doesn't have, and that everybody has the same chance of everybody else. And in the end, it's all gonna rough out 
work out roughly equal, not exactly equal, but we're not going to have what are the what are the favorite words of the um, Gilded Age. We're not going to have the dangerous classes. Very, very poor are dangerous because the very, very poor can become the tool of demagogues, they believe. But the demagogues come from the very, very rich, and they're even more dangerous. Then once you begin to see a society with this huge differences in wealth, particularly producing the kind of plutocracy that they produced and we're producing now, that is the clearest sign that there is danger for the republic. And they ardently believe that. Um, we think they admire great wealth. There's nothing I see in the Gilded Age that shows that to be true. They are really afraid of great wealth, and they see the, the achievement of great wealth by certain people, which they always regard as corrupt, as being a danger to them and their society. Professor Richard White, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's a real pleasure to host you. Um, I, I really uh, enjoyed your book, and uh, I just uh, thank you again for, uh, for taking the time out to talk to us. Okay, thanks for the conversation, Rob. Once again, the book is The Republic for Which It Stands, uh, America, the United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age uh, by Dr. Uh, Richard, w- White, Richard White. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Thanks.